0: Hi friends, welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. Well, mostly your host this week is Mike Kelsey, but I'm here too. So I hope you are having a great week and have enjoyed these episodes as much as I have. The music in the background for the last time is from our good buddy, Mr. Torrin Wells. Thank you, Torrin, for letting us use your music this spring. Remember to grab a copy of his new album, Citizen of Heaven. Today's episode is brought to you in part by our friends at IJM, International Justice Mission. IJM is a global nonprofit working to end slavery and violence around the world. In Latin America, they help children and women who've survived all kinds of violence and abuse and across southern asia ijm works with local law enforcement to rescue individuals and families out of slavery and trafficking truly ijm for the last 20 years has gone into the deepest cruelest pain in our world and they bring the full force of the law with them to provide justice and healing Over the last two decades, more than 50,000 individuals have been set free thanks to people like you who sent IJM to rescue them. But there are thousands more children, men, and women who are still waiting for rescue. And you can make a difference in their lives by becoming a freedom partner. Freedom partners give monthly so that IJM can show up month after month to rescue people from slavery and walk with survivors as they heal. So just visit IJM.org slash change lives to be a part of this movement for good. Again, that's IJM.org. Org slash change lives. Today we finish up our series with Mike where he has been hosting the last couple of episodes. If you have not heard those, I cannot say enough how much I have enjoyed them, how much you guys have enjoyed them. So make sure you go back and listen Monday and Tuesday this week to hear the other episodes hosted by Mike. But today on the show, Mike continues the conversation of what do we do now uh, to pursue racial justice with Jordan Rice, the lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Harlem, New York, and Lauren Allgood, the Southeast Director of Strategic Partners at World Relief. So here is a really excellent conversation hosted by this week's podcast host, Mike Kelsey with Jordan Rice and Lauren Allgood.
1: all right it's mike kelsey and uh i'm one of the pastors at mclean bible church i'm honored to be able to uh just spend some time with y'all today on the that sounds fun podcast and this whole episode is about one thing it's about action items uh now some of you may have heard me uh interviewing with annie a, a couple weeks ago on issues of race and justice and annie has been uh just walking this journey publicly for a while now, and one of the questions she gets, one of the questions I get so often is uh, just what do I do? You know, I'm convinced that racial injustice is a serious problem in our country, in my community, maybe even in my church or family, maybe even in my own heart, but what do I do? Uh, Would everybody stop talking so theoretical and just get practical? Give me some steps, like what can I actually do? And so I've invited some good friends uh, to lead us through uh, some next steps. Uh, Jordan Rice and Lauren Allgood, welcome to That Sounds Fun, y'all.
2: Yes, thanks for having us.
3: Thanks, Mike.
1: Absolutely. So I want to start with uh, just giving a little bit of a summary of y'all's life journey. Um, uh, Y'all are two of just my best friends in the world. And so we got a lot of history, but a lot of people don't know who you are. And so, uh, Lauren, I just want to just start with you. Where'd you grow up? Um, Was your background diverse or not? Uh, Yeah, just kind of take us way back.
3: Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Georgia, Dublin, Georgia, right in the middle of the state and went to University of Georgia uh, for college. And then after college, moved straight up to D.C., where I worked um, on Capitol Hill for the at the time it was uh, the senator from Georgia, uh, Paul Coverdell. So, just as far as like my background as far as diversity, um, Dublin's a pretty diverse town. Um, we started out in a private elementary school that was all white, but then uh, in junior high and high school, went to the public school that was majority uh, black school, actually. So, you know, definitely grew up in somewhat of a diverse town, but uh, also one that was definite, was, was segregated in a, in a way. So just yeah. as far as uh, where people lived and went to church and things like that. So um, yeah. and then, like I said, moved to D.C. because of my job and then um, worked in the government for quite a few years. And then after that, uh, went on staff with you at McLean Bible Church yeah. uh working in an internship program there and all right hold then- up because
1: i want to i want to jump in on on that in a second because I, I want you to yeah. unpack a little bit especially this part of the story is huge first of all i know you for a long time i never knew dublin was diverse if i think small town dublin <laughs> georgia one word that does not come to mind is diverse but that's good to know um jordan uh where where'd you grow up man
2: so I grew up in Westchester, right outside of the city in New York. Um, a lot of people are very disrespectful, and they call it upstate, and it is not. Uh, <laughs> it's like two miles from the Bronx, but that's not for this conversation today. So, grew up in uh, Yonkers and then New Rochelle, and, uh, but grew up at like, a all-Black church. I can probably count on one finger how many times we had a non-Black person in, in the church, Shiloh Baptist. Uh, yeah, so grew up in Westchester, and then
1: let me just say to everybody listening, bro, if you ever are trying to visit a church and the name is Shiloh Baptist Church, 100% it's a black church. 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. All right. So, so you, grew up, uh, you grew up in, in New York. And uh, so, Lauren, you talked a little bit about what brought you uh, to D.C., um, like many people who kind of moved to D.C. And I'm from the D.C. area. My family uh, is from, uh, from the city. Uh, But you kind of came in uh, working on Capitol Hill, that kind of thing. And you mentioned that you came on staff with me at McLean Bible Church, uh, which is the church where you were uh, as you lived in D.C. And uh, you did a couple of things. You were helping to lead our internship program. And then you became the director of a local nonprofit organization in this city called Daybreak. So explain uh, Daybreak, because this is a huge part of your story and why I invited you to kind of share some next steps for, for folks to learn from.
3: Yeah, so Daybreak was started by a member at McLean Bible Church uh, years ago. I mean, it's been 15 or 20 years ago now. And it was um, really the goal was to bring the gospel into to be sort of like a gospel um, outreach in a public housing community in D.C. Uh, east of the river, as we Lincoln know Heights,
1: it. Linga <laughs> You Lincoln might hear Linga called out in some 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 go go music.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, um. So I after I I like to say I retired from my political years and was just in a place of uh, somewhat of a place of just burnout and brokenness. And so decided to I just wanted to volunteer and to serve. And Daybreak was a place that I started volunteering. Um, But then in the end of 2009, um, became the executive director there. And so what's what happened is it originally was an outreach. I would say like an outreach ministry of McLean. But the housing authority uh, saw what was happening there, like through the um, outreach programs and offered to uh, give space in the community. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that uh, Daybreak eventually became a community organization and really focused on the education um, of the kids and as well as parents. So had several programs around, you know, after school programming and summer camp and and those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. And you met who's, I mean, grown up to become a, such a person so close to you, but started as just like a, a young mentee in that neighborhood. You met Anna uh, serving in Lincoln Heights, right? And it's been cool yeah. to kind of watch her grow up. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's been cool to watch her grow up. And it's also been cool to see how like some, in some ways, like our relationship has flipped and she's sort of become my mentor. So I've yeah. just learned a lot from her. So yeah, that's when I first met her. Uh, Daybreak has a men- had a mentoring program and uh, met Anna when she was eight years old and now she's 22 and That's yeah. That's crazy.
1: That's outrageous to me. Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's
1: crazy. All right. So in the midst of all this, so you're, you're, you're working that daybreak. you're serving at daybreak, then you're working there. Then you take the executive director position. You're in a section of the city that is predominantly to say the least black um, that honestly, a lot of people are afraid to, you know, visit, um, uh, except when you're on like your church mission trip, you know what I'm saying? And you show down, show up with your t-shirts and, um, and that kind of deal. Uh, and, and so you, this white woman from Georgia, uh, shows up leading this organization there in the midst of all that, you go back to school, you got your MBA, right? right. right, So you got your MBA, then you move to Africa and you're (laughs) living in Kenya. And, uh, just briefly, what were you doing in Kenya?
3: So um, as part of being at McLean, got, I got really involved in missions and had gotten connected to an organization called New Hope Initiative. And so they needed help with just uh, building capacity of their projects and um, working alongside their leaders. And I just saw an opportunity. I'd always wanted to to be involved in missions overseas and just saw an opportunity that maybe I could serve Um in that particular way by helping their leaders. And so I moved over and spent um, about a year and a half in Nairobi working in a slum in the middle of Nairobi called Kibera. And this organization had several projects there, just um, you know, a school, a business project, a health clinic, just uh, really serving the people that lived in that slum.
1: Yeah, so now you're back in Georgia, and I know I'm skipping a lot, but you're living in Atlanta, yeah. not Dublin, you know what I mean, you're living in Atlanta now. <laughs> Um and uh, and you're working with an organization called World Relief. So, uh, just for folks that may not be familiar, uh, tell us a little bit about World Relief.
3: Yeah, well, it's funny because it's like everything leads back to McLean Bible, which is funny, but it, that that's where I first um, learned about was introduced to World Relief, and so World Relief is a global humanitarian organization. Um, we we bring sustainable solutions to some of the world's greatest problems. And we, we talk about those in four different areas, disasters, extreme poverty, violence and oppression, and mass displacement. So we work in about 20 countries around the world, and we have 17 offices in the U.S. where we do refugee resettlement. You know, our, our vision and our goal is really to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And so, you know, that means that we're involved in whatever, and many many times it's whatever justice issue is, you know, in that community and, you know, trying to help uh, the church really empower their members to serve their yeah. neighbors.
1: Yeah. And I would just say, shout out to World Relief. If you, if folks want to grow, you know, in their understanding, particularly of just the plight of refugees around the world and here in the U.S. or even just immigrants and immigration more broadly, I think World Relief is a Great place to start from a Christian uh, perspective. And so y'all look up World Relief if you want more information. Uh, all right, Jordan, so you grew up in uh, New York, uh, moved away for college. Where'd you go to college?
2: Uh, I went to Morgan State University in Baltimore. Uh, it's an HBCU, Historically Black College and University. Uh, fun fact, that my grandmother, on my mother's side, I'm a fifth generation uh, HBCU grad. Wow. Uh, my great, great, great grandmother was in the second class ever at Hampton
1: wow wow that is strong i just saw i just saw this today actually that uh, i don't know if you saw this uh, netflix ceo uh donated 120 million dollars to support historically black colleges and universities so i think it's like 40 million to spelman college in atlanta 40 million to to morehouse 40 million to the united negro college fund um so uh man shout out to netflix ceo you know i hope there's I, you know, I, I hope that's that's a, a legit move. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm excited about about that assistance, man. So you went to HBCU. That is in your uh, just heritage uh, to attend historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. And then you end up getting your law degree and practice law in, in, in New York. What kind of law did you practice?
2: Uh, mainly uh, juvenile delinquency defense and family court in general. I think a piece of me was always knowing that i was going to get into ministry but trying to do everything that i could in my within my power to not go into ministry so doing like civil rights stuff and juvenile delinquency defense felt like i could hold off the beast of ministry for a little while but
1: that didn't work john got you it got me too (laughs) and and your family right is you you come from a law family right
2: oh yeah so growing up my mother was a lawyer my dad is a lawyer and my mother actually became a judge when i was a teenager. And, you know, when we would have an argument at my house, my mother would just say, you got 10 minutes, present your case. <laughs> and, yes. you know, if you were trying to get some more, uh, another fruit roll up, it was like, well, you got, you got 10 you minutes.
1: Better, you got to look at them nutrition <laughs> facts real quick. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, so then you felt called to pastoral ministry. You end up getting, uh, in addition to a law degree and practicing law. Then I hate people like you, dog. Like, oh, so I said it already on this show before, man, I, by the <laughs> grace of God. And, and by the skin of my teeth, I graduated from undergrad, um, but you got a, a, a law degree and then decided to go back and get a master's in theology as part of your training for ministry. But during that time, you actually interned at Sing Sing State Prison. Yeah. What in the like, what? what, what? Just talk about that, bro.
2: Yeah, I had some negative experiences in church. And I, again, I was trying to think about what I could do for ministry that wasn't going to be in church. So I reached out to some friends and thought about some things and decided to do like a chaplaincy residency at Sing Sing, and really that experience changed my life. My mentor there, who I really randomly formed a relationship with, was a mentor and a super godly man that actually gave me faith back in the in the church. So, but that was it was unearthed. It was it was very disturbing to see uh, what life is like for people in prison. Uh, to see the overwhelming majority of people in prison are just black and brown. Um, and it, it, was, it was just very sad to see, particularly mm. when all of the things I've studied and researched and seen in court is that black people are not committing more crimes. They're just treated more harshly when they are in front of the judge and in front of juries mm. in terms of receiving sentences. Uh, so it's, it, it's very- Yeah, bummed. and,
1: that, and, and, dude, and that's, not, that's not just stuff that you've seen on Twitter, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's stuff that you've actually seen- In my own As comments. an attorney in the courtroom.
2: Yeah, I've had yeah. the same judge for the same crime with two different kids. They literally gave one kid a slap on the wrist and the other kid, they tried to give him two years in juvie for the same mm-hmm. crime. Literally, mm-hmm. both 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 of them had the first, a first time offense of bringing a BB gun to school. And one kid, they literally gave him a slap on the wrist. The other kid, they tried to put him in juvie, kick him out of yeah. school, expel him. Uh, same judge, same county attorney. One was black, one was white. I'll let you fill in mm-hmm. the lips for who was who.
1: Yeah. So, so this stuff is real, man. And, and so you, you, you're now leading uh, Renaissance Church in Harlem, New York, uh, with your wife, uh, Jess, and, and just a great squad of folks that are, that are there at Renaissance. Um, and y'all, we don't have time to get you know, into all this in this episode. At uh, some point, man, uh, yeah, y'all, y'all should learn more about Jordan's story. But Jordan married Jess. Both of them were widowed in their 20s. Um, and uh, it's a pretty amazing story of God's grace and strength in the midst of suffering. Uh, and they met each other through some mu- mutual friends and ended up getting married. And it's not like a, a nice, pretty bow that you tie on top of the story. It's still difficult. Uh, and it's still it's, it's pretty complicated, you know, uh, especially since you guys are still very much so loved and are in relationship, you know, with your former in-laws. But uh, that's not what this episode is about. I'm just saying shout out to you and Jess. Uh, folks, y'all should just Google Jordan Rice and Jessica Rice and look up their story. And if this was my podcast, this would be the point in the show where I would say, we'll have to have you back uh, on sometime to share that story. But this ain't my show. Um, I don't have a show. I don't even know why I'm doing this. I have no idea what I'm doing right now. Um, so, all right. Uh, just one question that uh, we've been asking folks this week. and uh, And if you remember, cool if you don't, no problem. But what's the first time you remember being aware of your race. And then we're just gonna spend the rest of this episode literally walking through step by step some things people can can do. But I think this is important. Jordan, for you, what's the first time you remember being aware, aware that you weren't just a human, you weren't just somebody with brown skin, like you were black?
2: I think it was first grade because like uh, where I grew up in, in New Rochelle, it's very diverse, you know, and I remember like in kindergarten having all these play dates with like Jewish kids. Um, And just kids from all different ethnicities. And in first grade, for whatever reason, in the cafeteria, we kind of started to sit with other black kids. And then I just started to notice that there was a difference between me and and other kids. And I'm sure I didn't pick up on any microaggressions that were happening. But that's when I started to realize that, oh, I'm black and it's not really acceptable for me to be hanging out with white kids.
1: Hmm. Lauren, what about you?
3: Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I don't know that I, I know the answer to that question. Um, I mean, I, I think about just when I say Dublin was diverse, it, I, I mean, there were black people and there were white people, but that's pretty much the extent to the diversity. But, you know, my dad uh, had a small business and hired, you know, kind of had a diverse group of employees. And then, you know, like I said, like I went to an elementary school that was all white. And then Probably when I went into junior high, that's probably, I don't know that I would say um, I was aware that I was white. I think maybe that's when I became aware that there are black people and white people and there are, you know, we interact a certain way together. So Mm -hmm. like in, you know, in junior high is when I first saw like, oh, in the lunchroom, black people sit on one side, white people sit on the other. I realized like black people go to these churches, white people go to these churches. So I don't know that it, that's really personal, but definitely when I first started kind of seeing that there was a difference.
1: Yeah. And I love, you know, asking people that question. And I, and I, I would encourage all of us as we're talking to people, especially people different from us uh, about race. That's a helpful question to ask, because we're we've all been like I think about people who have kind of immigrated to the U.S., whether they're first generation or second generation, that experience of realizing, of learning the racial c- categories in the United States and realizing how you fit in, that's very different than uh, my experience learning about being black or Lauren your experience about you know being white. Uh, but but we've all been formed in some specific ways, and it's important for us to to know that. Um, so all right, so we. We've kind of gotten to know each other. I hope folks kind of can connect with your stories a little bit. But the whole point of this episode and the reason why I immediately thought of the two of you is because you are two people that I believe have a lot of wisdom to give when it comes to concrete, practical steps a person can take to grow when it comes to issues of race and issues of justice. And Jordan, you preached a sermon recently uh, on on justice and you laid out some helpful steps for people to take uh, who wanna become more aware and active when it comes to racial injustice. And in case people wanna find it, they can go to renaissancenyc.com and uh, it's the sermon from Sunday, June 14th and it's called, How Do We Pursue Racial Justice? Uh, And I know uh, Lauren was able to watch that sermon too. The first point you make, which I think is helpful, as we talk about next steps, is that justice from a Christian perspective isn't necessarily what we typically think about when we talk about justice in our 21st century American context. And so I think it's helpful for people to understand this because it really does influence the steps that you take. Uh, So just to catch everybody up to speed, what is justice in the Bible?
2: So justice in the Bible is two things. It's definitely that concept that we have, it's punitive, right? So there is that notion of justice where if someone commits a crime, that there is some addressing of that crime that was committed, so to make sure that there is something paid for an offense that happens. But justice is much bigger than just punitive in the Bible; it's also restorative. So I love this one definition of shalom, or the the definition of justice in the Bible, which is mishpat, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing. Hmm. And this is the this is what justice is in the Bible, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing. And that where people, God's people, are giving of themselves to make sure that uh, those who are made in the image of God, the imago Dei, uh, have the basic human needs to, to survive and to thrive uh, as people. Um, and we're, we're not just giving people punitive justice when they commit a crime, but we're also fo- focusing on restorative justice. Mm-hmm. How do we restore people who have been broken uh, or have been on, a, on the wrong end of some mistreatment?
1: Yeah, That's good. And it makes sense. So you're talking about a more holistic view of justice, right? That's not just punishment, but it's also restoration, um, which makes sense when you think about the character of God, that God is a just God who cares about all that he has made being in an environment where they're able to flourish. And granted, because of sin, like things are not as they should be. We all recognize that, especially over these last uh, several weeks and as christians we look forward to the day right when when the god of justice will restore everything and make everything that has been broken everything that has been distorted he will make those things right but in the meantime uh we have work to do like we have a responsibility as human beings who have been made in the image of god but even specifically i would say and, and maybe even in a more emphatic way i would say for us as christians like if if anybody should care about justice like Man, Christians should not be the ones sitting on the bench. You we know, when been. it comes to these issues, yeah, we should be. We should be uh, ahead of of the game on these issues. And uh, so, let's talk through these steps. and And your sermon is is kind of those points you gave are so helpful. And it's just kind of the framework that I want us to walk through. So, the first step, Jordan, you said for anybody listening who who says, what do I do? How do I get involved? I see these issues. I want to go out and I want to protest. I want to march. I want to lobby, you know, my, you know, local officials and state officials. And like you said, first step is for you to go inward. And if you're taking notes, here we go. First step, go inward before you engage anywhere else. Why Lauren, well, let me let me start with you, Jordan, because you you preach the sermon, right? Let yeah. me just start with you. Just why do you think that's an important first step? And then Lauren, I, I would love to hear uh, from you on this too, because we've talked about this for so long.
2: Yeah, man, the the first place you need to go is often the last place you want to go. Mm. So, the Bro, first you gotta place say that again, man. Yeah. You gotta say that again. The the first place you need to go is oftentimes the last place you want to go. So it's so much easier to see the great injustices and say, I'm going to make a sign and go out and protest. And I'm grateful for everyone who wants to take these steps. But that's kind of easy in these circumstances. And it's really also it really would just lead to shallow engagement. Unless we take a really hard look at the ways in which racist notions, ideas and patterns have been nurtured inside of us, all of our engagement will be shallow and prideful. Because we're mm. always going to be looking outside, and we won't even really spend the time to unearth, to discover, to admit, mm. to repent the ways that racism has been nurtured in all of us. I've heard mm. racism described as a dust that we've just been breathing our entire lives. And if that's true, which I believe it is, it's in, embedded in the fabric of our country in, in so many ways that we'd be mm. kidding ourselves to just do an action plan that doesn't first start start with us.
1: yeah. Uh, Jordan, you, you said you said if we don't do that work first, our engagement will be shallow and prideful, shallow in what sense?
2: Shallow emotionally. So we'll be attacking things conceptually, but not personally. Mm. So we'll be attacking mm. things doctrinally where I have conversations with friends all the time and they're like, well, racism has no place in the church. and I'm like, cool. Neither does pornography. But our mm. church is full of it. Mm-hmm. So this, these shallow statements that people peddle out are because they haven't first done the work to look at the extent to which racism has formed inside of them. So mm-hmm. then people make nice, cute, uh, perfectly crafted statements. They spend all the time with their communications department and they spend mm-hmm. no, no time with their prayer team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it leads, it's emotionally shallow to, to do these things. And then your engagement is prideful because now you're just telling people what they need to do. And you yourself haven't even done that yet.
1: Yeah. So Man. then, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Lauren, going inward, why would you say, just in general, that's an
3: important first step? Well, for me, it's, uh, you know, I've said this to you before, Mike, like, these issues are are just part of being, like, you guys already touched on it, like, to be a Christian is to care about justice, and I think, you know, when you talk about going inward, like, that's just a part of, to me it's just a part of the christian life i mean it's about sin it's about like you know asking god to show you the parts of you that you know he still needs to redeem and mm-hmm. um and so it's just yeah i think going i don't know how we move forward without going inward first to me that's just been part of just my christian walk and i mean i love that Jordan used um, Psalm 139 in a sermon because, I mean, that really is just such a simple way to, to begin asking God, you know, what are the blind spots in my mm-hmm. heart? And, mm-hmm. you know, where, what are the things that, that you want to, um, you know, r- where do I need to repent? And what are the things that you, yeah. you, you know, want to redeem in my life?
1: That's so good. And I, I mean, I think about it, even Jesus is clear, right? He's like, why do you point out the log in somebody else's eye? you haven't even taken out the speck in your own. And it also made me think about uh, the prophet Nathan with with King David, right? He, Nathan comes to David talking about this crazy story about this dude that's just reckless and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And David is legit angry. angry. Like he's like legit angry. Like if this is 2020, my man is on Instagram, just popping off, he's, he's in his IG stories like going crazy. And then Nathan says, "You are that man, you know what I mean? Like your anger is turned outward, but you haven't even turned that anger anger inward um forget turning it inward. you haven't even spent long enough to even realize just That's how that. how that is even that is even there man so jordan you you gave your church a guide uh to help them do this kind of internal work, and so I want to ask you, man, would you be willing to just walk us through those questions those?" reflection questions that you have in that guide because I think, man, it's so helpful for me when I was thinking through those questions and I think it'll be helpful for people listening, man. So just walk us through those questions.
2: So, yeah. So this is the beginning for people as we kind of, it's a long, lifelong journey to to really process this stuff. But the first uh, aspect of it, we're looking at just some of the explicit messages that you heard growing up about race from your parents or your grandparents. And this is really important that you don't consider what impact they've had on you yet. You should just really list them out. And maybe in the show mm-hmm. notes, we can include some of these questions as well. So mm-hmm. what are these yeah. explicit messages that you've heard? It uh, could be a passing comment from your parents or your grandparents. And then what were the implicit messages that you heard uh, growing up about race from your parents and grandparents? So what mm-hmm. were the some of the implicit things that they did um, that although on its surface, it wasn't explicitly racist or uh, had a connotation about race, that now looking back on it, you can tell that there was a message behind it. Mm-hmm. And then, the, so first is grandparents and parents. And then second is what were the explicit messages you heard growing up about race from your community? With this, this is your friends, your school, your church. Mm-hmm. Um, and then taking that same implicit look from your friends,
1: your, your school and your church. And then- And, and let, me, let me pause you there and just ask you real quick for somebody who might be wondering. So think about those explicit and implicit messages you heard from your family and that you heard in your community. Why, why is that important? Because I can hear some people thinking, well, what, that, I reject all that, even if it was racist or whatever. Like, what does that have to do with me? Why is that step important?
2: Man, that's such a good question. It's so important because I think we kid ourselves to think that we are just surrounded with this cloud, or, or we're just being rained on by all of these uh, racist notions and ideas and thoughts, but yet somehow we remain dry. Mm. that's that's just kind of i think Mm -hmm. we're kidding ourselves if we think Mm. that we've been been bombarded from from early early ages and if you think about it how much you have developed your appetite the things the foods that you like your accent Mm -hmm. all these different Mm -hmm. things from these same places so yeah you can have an accent you can have the you know your favorite meal you know whatever it was that you developed from childhood but Mm -hmm. yet all of these other things as it pertains to messages of race and racism for whatever reason you believe that you have shunned those completely uh, I think it would be pretty unwise to take that man. approach.
1: That's so good, dude. So it's important for us to think about those messages from our family, from our community. All right. What, what else, man, as we're, as we're kind of going inward, how, how can we kind of reflect? What are some of the other questions you had in there?
2: So some of the other ones are really important because now you're starting to put together, what are the themes that you notice in the way your family of origin in the way that they discussed and handled race? So mm. what are the ways that they discuss and handle dating, for example? And, and what are the conversations that happened in your family when someone dated outside of their race? Uh, mm. Just what are these themes that you start to see emerge? And then what messages can you extract from those themes? Uh, and another one that's really important are to look back for any earthquake events that you experienced surrounding race. So mm. this could be a traumatic thing. This could be something that, you know, you, where you were told, you know, for a lot of black people, A lot of them will say, Well, the first time I was called the N word was an earthquake Mm. event where I really Mm. realized how much hatred was behind so much of this stuff. So, and then the question turns even more inward. Now we're thinking, What are the things that you have thought about people based Mm. on the explicit and implicit messaging you heard from your family of origin and community? Mm. And one of my Mm. friends wrote a really good article about um, adopting a black son didn't cure my racism. And he mm-hmm. tells a story about having adopted a black son and, you know, he's down for the cause. But then he's walking onto the elevator when his son is about a couple of months old and there's three black men on the elevator. And he said he felt a literal tug stop him from getting on the elevator mm-hmm. because this there was just this innate fear that just stopped him from getting on. And they mm-hmm. weren't, you know, they didn't have guns in their hand and they weren't mm-hmm. you know doing anything violent. And he asked himself that question, what was it that stopped me from walking on that elevator? Mm-hmm. And kind of forced himself to get on and they were having a conversation about somebody whose grandmother just passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, the most benign conversation yeah. possible. But he said, well, what, what was that? And it's the way I've been conditioned to think that black men are violent and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that stopped me. And mm-hmm. that didn't come because someone, you know, my parents weren't in the KKK, he was saying. It wasn't like yeah. they were overtly racist, but I've heard these messages and these themes that black men are more aggressive and more violent. Um, mm. and, that, and that plays its way out so many times. And again, from, from an attorney's standpoint, you see this in the way that judges and juries treat black mm-hmm. boys and black men. Yeah. They treat them that they're more violent and uh, more aggressive. So when they commit a crime, uh, they're, they're more likely to throw the book at them. So And then it gets even more inward. And it says, well, what are the messages that you believe now? Mm. What are the tugs that you have right this second? Yeah. And one of the most helpful ways I know to talk about this is even me and my journey, you know, with toxic masculinity. And, you know, that term is a a big loaded one. And I think about how even to this day, and I've done a lot of work trying to unearth all the ways that I was, you know, really raised to uh, not by my parents expressly, but raised by my community and culture to believe that me being a man meant having all the women and really dominating Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways. And I still feel it a little bit, when my son wants the purple crayon or the purple marker, mm. I'm like, "No, no, buddy, get the blue one. You want, you want the blue one,
1: right?" Listen, I got two sons, dog. When he when he wants the purple cup, dog, I don't. It like, just no. something rises up. Yeah, yeah, it, man.
2: It, it would it would make no sense for me to pretend like that's coming from nowhere.
1: Yes, it doesn't control
2: yeah. me, but it's definitely coming from somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good, man. That's good. We'll definitely have to have to link to that because that that. Those questions, starting from your family of origin and and leading you all the way through the things that you consciously believe today that shape your behavior, man, that's a journey, an inward journey that is just so, so helpful. And I love what you said, Jordan, because I see a lot of people who say, well, hold up. I mean, we, you know. All of us have heard this, Lauren. You've heard this So people say, "Wait, I I have a black friend, or I have black friends, or I've adopted black kids, as if that is a cure to racism. You know, it's it's a good thing to do, or it can be a good thing to do. Sometimes it's actually not that that good, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those things aren't still present in your heart. And that's true for all of us. And so, Lauren, you've you've wrestled through some of those kinds of questions before, and so. What has that inward process been like for you?
3: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny just sitting here listening to Jordan. I'm thinking, hey, can I get a copy of that? Because I've actually Mm -hmm. never been through like those specific questions. It was a little bit different from me. Um, And it's definitely been a process. And I feel like it will continue to be kind of a lifelong process um, but one thing I think, well, first of all, you know, Mike, before you and Ashley got married, Ashley and I lived together, and that we, f- we was- forgot
1: about that part of your history. <laughs> that is an epic part of your history.
3: Know, you and not
1: my wife, you and my girlfriend at the time, yeah, were roommates,
3: and you know, so we you would heard all- her say,
1: <laughs> talk all kinds of trash, you know, what I'm saying about. <laughs> about how slow I was to propose, but that's a whole nother episode too. Oh yeah. That is that is
3: another we're
1: gonna cut cut this part out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Lauren. So y'all so y'all were roommates.
3: Yeah. So and so I think, you know, that's a big part of my story and just like getting to know Ashley and just like we just as we were becoming friends and we were living together. Um, she definitely exposed me to like the black experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. living, growing up in America black, because I had not had a friend that close, you know, Mm -hmm. an African-American friend like that close to me that um, I could really see like what life was like. And so Ashley and I would have conversations. Actually, I think those conversations is actually what pushed me inward. So Mm -hmm. it was almost like backwards for me in a way where she would say something And I just couldn't believe it. Right. Mm. I was just like, what? I mean, it would be Mm. something like really, I don't know, just like really shocking. And Mm. I would try to fight it because I was, you know, like what you were saying, Jordan, like I was sort of taught, like what I would call whitewashed history of slavery and of Mm. the America, you know, just of American history in general. And so when she would say things to me, I would just be sort of shocked. But then um, I would sort of like take a step back and think about that and try to process that. Um, so hmm. that was part of my process and part of like how, you know, I've gone inward. But another thing that I want to mention um, is inviting other people to into that. So for me, I also need to see like my behavior. I need someone to like show me a behavior Mm. that is rooted in racism for me to root it out. Does that make mm. sense? So yeah. like when I worked for, when I was leading Daybreak, we it was all black staff except for myself. And um, I actually invited the staff to, because I, I was very aware that there was a power differential and you know, there was just, there were like, because I was the only white person in the community and in the um, organization, like I was very aware of that and that I needed to understand that.
1: Yeah. And Lauren, let me just say that there too, uh, I'm sure some people listening, it is interesting, even for me as a leader in McLean Bible Church, (laughs) you know, when we think about having an inner city ministry among a dramatically predominantly black community with an all black staff, but the person that we put in charge was was a white woman, right? Yeah. So I, I now I'm yeah. thankful that that white woman was you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I, you are ride or die. And I appreciate that, but that's a very real, like, even as I'm reflecting on that, because that was early yeah. on in my days at the church. Um, those are, those are dynamics, right? That we need to consider in the ways that our organizations are led um, but yeah, you did a great job and, but in the midst of that, right, that it was, it was a huge kind of wake up call for you. So I yeah. jumped in there. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, no, I'm glad you said it. Cause it was, it was very, I was very aware of that. And mm-hmm. also that I represented kind of a, I mean, just to be real honest, like I represented a big white wealthy mega church, you know, yeah. in the suburb. And there's a lot that came with that, you know, that I needed to really better understand. And so what I did is I I invited the staff to show me like where my behavior was, you know, racist or even just like, you know, not aligned with the heart of God, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and so they would tell me things like, Oh, like, you know, we'd have these long conversations, but then I would ask them, Hey, when you see me do it, like in that moment, can you just pull me to the side and tell me, because I I need to, I need to, I need like a real, like tangible example. And so Jeremy who worked with me, um, I think you guys both know Jeremy. He did that once and he did it in a very discreet way. And I mean, I went home that night and just, you know, once he showed it to me, like it was really, it was a really painful process Mm. of, you know, like I had to kind of get over the pride of, you know, I was wrong, you know, mm-hmm. so you kind of have to get over that. And then um, it's a process to kind of move through the shame of it. Because yeah. once God shows you something like that, I mean, it's very painful. And, you know, just to know, like the sinfulness of your heart. And so I'm very great. I'm, I'm really grateful just for um, that particular time, like working in daybreak. And um, you know having the relationship with the staff that they you know could could point those things out to me So that I think that's an important part. I know that we're talking about going inward But yeah, I think our fellow believers our family like they have to help us with that
1: That's so good and it takes it takes a Lot of humility, you know for you to invite folks to 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 be able to say I mean that's like that, that that's such so sensitive You know, but for you to invite people to share that with you and it took a lot of courage for, for Jeremy and them to love you enough to not just cancel you or not just pop off every time you said something, but to, they loved you enough to tell you the truth. They were gracious, you know what I'm saying? Like They stuck around with you in your process, but they loved you enough to look you in your face and say, Miss Lauren, because I know all the kids and, and and y'all all called each other Miss and Mister in front of the kids. They would say, Miss Lauren, I need to point this out about the way that you're making these decisions or interacting with people. And you brought up yeah. shame. And Jordan, this is something that you and I have talked about, bro. And oh, yeah. you, I think, dog, you have done such a just amazing work around this uh, in leading your congregation. And this was a major light bulb for me, even in my leadership in my church, uh, man, how, what would you say to white brothers and sisters who are listening about what some might call white guilt or uh, just more broadly speaking, the shame involved in walking through these steps in this journey, man? What would you say about that shame?
2: Man, I would say that this is the process by which God is going to use to make you a real Christian, that <laughs> we, would, we would really rely on Jesus and not on our efforts so many of us we experience shame because we are attaching our identity to our to our efforts we do not Mm. believe we're not really believing that we are good with god completely based on what jesus has done on the cross we think it is jesus plus the fact that i don't have any racist ideas in my head Mm. so so there's that so there's this confusion and conflation with what we do with who we are which really gets at the heart of our understanding of god and ourselves so we, we've done a great deal and we are working with people a lot just to see the extent to which this is letting them see how much they're relying on themselves and mm-hmm. not on Jesus. So, uh, Lauren, what I love about your story is really there's this there's this grief that happens in your life when you experience this. And Paul talks about this in Corinthians, that this grief le- can lead to actual repentance, you know, but mm-hmm. the, the, the worldly grief which brings death is the one that is... Uh, it's self focused it's i can't believe I did that i can't believe I said that and it's all mm. pointed back to us it's all pointed back to how good we are in our own eyes and that's that's not going to get you anywhere in your walk with Jesus, regardless of the conversation or race with anything and uh, learning learning how to process who we are in light of what we do and to truly put our identity in Jesus is the only thing that's going to allow us to 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 wrestle honestly mm. with the things that we have and and one other thing that's really important. We, we're teaching our people to, to not say that I'm a racist. You're not defined by what you've done. This, mm-hmm. is, the, this is the essence of Christianity. Mm-hmm. We're, defined, we're, we're, we're defined relationally, not behaviorally. So mm-hmm. many of us, all of us have racist thoughts, ideas, notions that have been imbe- embedded and nurtured inside of us. Mm-hmm. And it is the job of the Christian to beat our bodies under subjection. What does Paul say? Uh, so I beat my body under subjection. It's not that I don't have thoughts that go against God. As he says in Romans seven, um, there are some things that I want to do. I don't do those things. There are some things that I don't want to do. I end up doing those things. Yeah. So Paul talks about himself being a real life sinner and Jesus being a real life savior. Uh, and this process that we're supposed to go on is one where we understand, um, the maturity that God wants us to have is that we would know what to do. And despite our feelings, despite our urges, despite our mm-hmm. tendencies, we would put those things to death and follow Jesus regardless of how we feel. Um, so it's not whether or not you are a racist. Uh, it's it's not that final. Our behaviors don't define us in that way. Yeah. It's what are we doing with these thoughts? Are we putting them to death and following Jesus and dealing with them honestly? Or are we covering up?
1: That's so good, man. That's so good. And, and one of the things you the, the, the links you made for me when we were talking about this and we talked about this a lot. Is that if you don't handle that shame appropriately then it'll either lead you in one of two directions either it'll make you double down on your pride you'll just get defensive and yep. and then you'll just start resisting everybody that that calls you out you know or, or brings anything to your attention or you'll just shut down you'll just completely shut down and be paralyzed you won't want to you'll be too afraid to engage in conversations you'll be too afraid to 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 really to be honest about the things that you need to learn about. Uh, and so, man, I so appreciate just that gospel center view of how we deal with that shame because that is what begins to free us to kind of move through this process. And that's true for for all of us as we as we yeah. walk you know through this. So the the first step is that you you need to go inward before you try to engage anywhere else. And then Jordan, you said the second step is to determine where you engage, determine where you're engaged, and I think that's so important because a lot of times we get overwhelmed. And I've got we got a lot of questions about this actually. Oh yeah, we get overwhelmed trying to figure out where do I start. And uh, and you made a good point in your sermon, man. Uh, and you, you gave an example, and I let people listen to the sermon. Uh, but the 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 point that you made was you said don't make the mistake that I made of thinking that everyone has to be as passionate about things as you're passionate about in order to be a servant of christ now we should all care especially if you're a christian we should all care about justice we should all care about vulnerable and marginalized and oppressed people for sure that's non-negotiable that is that is a part of what it means to be a christian james is clear about that in, in in james chapter one about what true religion looks like for sure so all of us should be passionate about that but we're all gonna pursue that passion in different ways and you you, you made it clear that we all have a different role to play, so you got to determine where you'll engage. And Lauren, I wanted to ask you how how did how did all this affect your decision even about where to go to church so we've we've kind of heard about uh, yeah. you you know serving a day break and going to Kenya and all of that. But when you moved to Atlanta, you had to make a decision about where you were going to become a member of a local church. And so yeah. talk to us about that because that definitely is a, a place of engagement.
3: Yeah. So when I moved to Atlanta, it, the goal was really to be closer to family. And so, so I I didn't move here to work in like a, in a particular like passion area I, other than like, I just really wanted to be close to my family. And mm. so I think that that for me, that meant, okay, when I choose a church, um, I kind of, you know, just based on my journey and thinking about my time at daybreak and just what we learned about doing a gospel ministry outside of the church in some ways, we just really had this desire that in this prayer that God would bring, would plant a church in Lincoln Heights. And actually he has now, um, which is really cool, a whole nother story. So when I came to Atlanta, I really wanted to be, there's a couple of things, like I Um, my two top things were preaching and, you know, that the church and the pastors held up the gospel and the word of God. And then the second one was diversity, but I would go like a step further in that, that I really wanted to, um, be under black leadership because, Mm -hmm. uh, the churches, most of the churches in Atlanta are either white or black. Um, I mean, there are some that are more, a little more diverse than that, but for the most part. And so, yeah, I just, that was kind of how I filtered my uh, thought process that uh, if we really want to see racial equality and justice in the church, I feel like white people have to put themselves under minority leadership. And so that was a big part of why I decided to get a cornerstone.
1: Why though? So you say like, I really wanted, you know, uh, to be under black leadership why why, why was that important for you and 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 this is this does not have to be the case and i and I know you this doesn't have to be the case for everybody, but I think it's important for folks to kind of hear your thought process. why was that an important thing for you as you thought about where to go to church
3: I think just to be um well, maybe I should back up a little bit, so I believe you know that God intends um Like when we read in Revelation, like I just love the picture of uh, tribes, tongues and nations, like Mm -hmm. all will be together. Yeah, all gathered together. And so I think that that's what we see in heaven. And I think that that's what we should work toward on earth, even though we Mm -hmm. know that that won't, you know, that won't be complete until then. Um, And so that that's a big just when I read scripture, that's just um, to me, that just seems like a, the heart of God. And so mm-hmm. when you look at churches throughout, I mean, particularly here in Atlanta, but really anywhere, um, the the only way I see to, you know, the only way I see worshiping and being community with a diverse group of people that reflect like, the, you know, that reflect the image of God, like the glory of God is mm-hmm. Is that, is that, you know, it would be important to me. My conclusion was there, it would be important to be in a church with black leadership. I don't know if I answer your question, but.
1: We did. You did. And and it's helpful. And and I think the reason why I wanted to tease it out a little bit is so that when we think about our lives uh, and we really surrender them to to Jesus completely, um, and even for those who are listening who are not Christians who want to, uh, sometimes we celebrate diversity as if diversity itself is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, diversity is, is not the goal. Movie theaters are diverse. You know what I'm saying? It, it's nothing transformational happening in the movie theater, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, but but we're looking for transformation. Like we're looking for genuine equity and justice and reconciliation in the broadest, most holistic sense of the term, right? Not just hugging each other and singing Kumbaya, but genuine reconciliation. And uh, And so that's gonna affect where we decide to live is going to affect where we decide to to, to go to church. Like it, this is a whole life commitment that we're talking about, and we'll all, like Jordan said, in terms of determining where to engage, we all give each other grace and kind of deciding how that plays out. But uh, I love how you answered the question. I think it's just helpful for people to to hear what went into that. Jordan, uh, what what uh, what are some of the best ways to figure out uh, under this step of determining where you're engaged? Uh, to figure out where God might be calling you to, to get involved.
2: Yeah, I think the most helpful preamble to that is really, where is God calling me to get involved today? That I think what paralyzes us so often is that we're looking at, all right, God, what is the next 10 years, five years? And like, the question is, what should I be doing today? And yeah. I think we need to look to one of three things, um, our gifts, our burdens, and our interactions. Mm-hmm. So the gifts are just things that you're good at. You might might be excited about it, you might not be excited about it, but God has given you this gift to serve. Um, And if you can use that gift to serve uh, people in such a way that will bring justice, and this, again, restorative justice, that's one avenue. The second is a burden, and this one gets a lot more play because it's something that God has just burdened in your heart to do. And one of the things I love is in Exodus 2, before God appears to Moses in a burning bush, God first appears to Moses and lights him on fire in Exodus 2, where he lets Moses see the mistreatment of his people. And Moses gets so mad that he goes down and actually kills the Egyptian, uh, which gives us a warning, one, against taking things into our own hands. But it also shows us that God oftentimes allows us to be burdened before he comes to us with the command to do something. So uh, I think you should look at what is God just making you really, really upset about that he's burdening you. And a burden is something that you just can't allow it to continue to happen. The Mm -hmm. third one is something that a lot of people don't want to do, but I think it's a it's a real area for engagement. It's what are your interactions? What are Mm -hmm. your day to day interactions that you can lend yourself to the cause of justice and commit yourself to the cause of justice? I always tell my people at Renaissance, like, don't don't get super woke and like offend your friends unnecessarily on Facebook. Mm. Don't, don't mm-hmm. hide them, don't delete them. Send them a loving, gracious DM. And when the mm. coronavirus pandemic is over, take them out to lunch or coffee um, and walk with them gently through the process. Th- the same process that broke you, walk w- with them slowly and gently and graciously yeah. through that process. That won't get the headline news, but this interaction could be a, a way that you can really lend yourself towards uh, justice.
1: That's so good, man. And you. Even in that, I, one of the points you made in the sermon, you quoted Frederick Douglass, who said, I prayed for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Yep. And your your whole point in that was like, all right, once you can see a clear next step for what to do right now, do it. prayerfully take that next step. you know." And uh, and so I think that's freeing for people because uh, God will redirect, you know what I mean? And, and we'll learn some things uh, along the way. So. So go inward, determine where you'll engage. The third step was we have to get close to the problems that we care about and uh, and I love your point you know in that and we see that Lauren in your life, right as God was breaking your heart, many, many times now over the course of your life, you've gotten close to the problems that you uh, that you care about. Um, and then Jordan, your last point, which is not so much a step, but I think this is a really critical point. And then I just want to throw a couple of rapid fire questions at y'all from from some of the listeners that sent in questions. Jordan, you said we have to, this is specifically for Christians. You said we have to actually follow Jesus in the process. what do you mean by that, man?
2: Whenever I'm going through like a situation that's causing me pain or frustration, I just want to take it into my own hands and mm. just say, like, all right, I did it. Jesus, your way didn't work. So let me just do it my way. And, you know, th- we don't have enough time on this podcast or any podcast to talk about how wrong that is. But mm. We actually just have to allow Jesus to direct us and to redirect us regardless of what we want to do. Mm. So if Jesus says to confess, repent. We just need to do that. If Jesus mm. says to be gentle, we need to be gentle. Mm. Um, if Jesus says whatever Which he is says. Very about-
1: difficult right now for some of us, bro. Like it's, sure, it's right. very difficult right now for me to be gentle. So I hear you for sure. And that's a word for me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, you know, and gentleness is so misunderstood. It's just removing all unnecessary aspects of something in order to reach your desired goal. So for me, I have this temptation to just light someone up online or to to cancel somebody Mm -hmm. straight up. I just want to like I'm never going to I just want to define you by what you've just done. And that's it. I'm never going to deal with you again. But I can't say I follow Jesus and do that. Mm -hmm. I can't do that Mm -hmm. even though I want to, even though I'd be celebrated for doing that. I can't do that so it's this constant process of realizing the extent to which i need jesus's grace and to submit my life to his leadership and his lordship in everything in the process particularly the things that i don't want to do and as you're going through this journey there will be things that you do not want to do and this is a clarifying, clarifying process
1: of who am i following am i following me or am i following jesus that's so good that's so good man so Let me summarize those steps for folks listening. First step, go inward before you engage anywhere else. Second step, determine where you'll engage. Third step, we have to get close to the problems that we care about. And I would say throughout all those steps, we have to actually follow Jesus in the process. Uh, Man, that's so good. So here's what I want to do before we wrap up. There's a couple questions that came in. And so this is kind of rapid fire time. And uh, Lauren, I want to start with you. Michaela asked this question. She said, how do we broaden our friendships to include more people of color in an organic, selfless way?
3: So one thing that comes immediately to mind, um, I was at brunch with some people from church. Um, This was back in the fall. And I was sitting by my brother Bernard and he's actually Haitian. And he shared that And he's been at Cornerstone for a couple of years. He's been in the U.S. for longer than that. But he shared that he had never been in a white person's home until he started going to Cornerstone. Hmm. And Hmm. that shocked me. And so my encouragement would be that even in just um, maybe it's, you know, just any sort of relationship that maybe you have a coworker or, you know, someone from church or maybe it's a neighbor That um, I think a great starting place is just to invite someone into your home and have a meal with them and -hmm. just to think about those things. Like I've had some friends tell me that, you know, their kids have friends that are, um, you know, people of color. So why not invite your friends, you know, your kids, friends, parents over for dinner? You know, so Mm -hmm. just things like that. I think those are just really easy, simple steps.
1: That's good. That is, that's helpful. Let me ask you this, Jordan. This, this question came from Ashley. She said, if your church is staying silent on issues of race, what's the next best step to take? How do you approach the topic with leadership in a manner that will challenge a change?
2: I would say you have to approach it humbly. And you can't approach that outward, what the church is not doing, if you yourself won't confront it inside of you. And mm. I think you need to go through that process internally of working out how racist notions and ideas and thoughts have been nurtured in you and how you found freedom in that and then go to your church with this you know how this has deepened your discipleship path with jesus Mm -hmm. and what this experience has been like for you and how it would be so helpful for the rest of people to also hear something similar to this Um, I, i always want to caution against doing that but secondly i would say determine how long you can commit if they're not listening for you, you, know, pray through that. Maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, uh, whatever that timeline looks like. And then mm-hmm. at a certain point, um, after you've done the hard work internally and you brought it up graciously to them, then I would, uh, I, I would not demand immediate diversity. Because I don't, I don't know that the goal for every church is diversity. I think the goal mm-hmm. is solidarity for a lot of mm-hmm. churches. Um, there's a lot of conversations on how neighborhoods have become so sectioned off. And for some people it's just not practical to mm-hmm. get diversity. Uh, renaissance is very diverse but we don't have any indian people for example because there's not a lot of indian people in the neighborhood so it will be very difficult for us for example to to have a pipeline of indian people because there's just none that live near there are some but not a lot obviously mm-hmm. so then determine that, how long you can give it and then to continue to bring it up but you can state things in an affirmative way about just how the value you found in really going through this process of unearthing racism to to really make sure that they're addressing the issues of race
1: yeah, man, I appreciate that, and I I want to underscore that, man, especially for people in general. But I want to say specifically to people of color, uh, what Jordan just said. Just hear hear that, like hear everything he just said, uh, uh, from the inward work to the 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 humble way that you approach, but also in terms of deciding how long you can stay. And I just want, cause I want to give some folks freedom, especially people of color. Sometimes we feel so guilty about leaving a church. Uh, it is okay. Um, if, if over time, as you are talking humbly to your leaders and, um, and, and, and we have to be patient for sure, let people go through their process. They have a responsibility to lead the church. Uh, but at a certain point, it's okay, uh, on this issue, I think to, to look and just say, this is not, it's not a safe place for me. Like this is not a place where I can be discipled in all of who I am uh, that's, that's okay. You know, don't do that off day one. Don't do that off a, you know what I'm saying? Like a Twitter thread that you read, but, uh, but it's, it's okay, uh, for that. There's, there's thankfully we live in a country where there's many churches within the body of Christ that are faithfully preaching the gospel. Uh, Lauren, this was, a uh, an important question. I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I want to make sure I ask it just so you can answer it. Elizabeth said, how do we be an effective and helpful ally, right? When we're thinking about racial justice without giving off the persona of being a white savior. Mm.
3: Yeah. And for yeah, those I who th-
1: aren't familiar with what, what that means, white savior is often like white people who uh, kind of come in and kind of make themselves the center of attention and come in with a mindset that uh, that the world or this community needs me in order to, you know, be better uh, without acknowledging ways that like, I need this community in order to grow mm-hmm. and be better. Um, so it's, that's the white savior complex that it seems like Elizabeth is asking about. So Lauren, how do you avoid that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, what, what I talked about earlier with, um, I think you said like humility and, you know, um, in a pot, like going in a, with a posture of learning and growing, but a couple of other things I would say is um, what are your expectations? Like what, you know, I mean, I, th- I think like I found myself expecting certain types of change or like effectiveness when that's really not where that's really not what we should be focused on. So um, so I think just being real about like God has called me to serve this community um, and God will bring the fruit and the transformation that he's going to do there. You know, it's not, it's not on my own. It's not based on my own works. I say, I think Jordan kind of touched on this earlier. And then the other thing, I think another really practical thing is just always being like in a support role of empowering local leadership, whatever that might mean, or empowering, you know, when we think about
1: missions, you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean,
3: that was kind of in the context of missions, but even, you know, Cornerstone is in a black community. And so, like, I want to see, you know, my black brothers and sisters, like, I want to be supporting them and encourage them and supporting them, you know, as they go out and serve. And so just being in like a secondary position, I think, is
1: mm. important. That's good. This has been so helpful. And uh, I got uh, one final question. But before I get to that question, Jordan, you you have a cousin um, who is almost 100 years old he just right 100, yeah he's 100 he now just turned 100 man and and i've just had the privilege of of hearing about him and his wisdom and his experiences especially as a 100 year old black man in the united states of america so just talk a little bit about your cousin man and and specifically as we get ready to shut this down like what what's some of the advice that he's given that you think would just be a blessing to people listening
2: Man, so Cousin George is 100 years old and is such an amazing part of our family and leader in our family and, you know, grew up in Jim Crow South where KKK roamed his neighborhood and he had friends who were hung by the KKK. Mm. And I asked him one time, just through tears, like, Cousin George, like, don't you, don't you hate them? Like, what did you do to not just be filled with rage and hatred? And he just said, you know, I learned how to hate one time. I was 22 years old but it didn't really last because it was the most miserable life that I've ever had. And Mm -hmm. he says, when you you hate, what happens is it actually makes you miserable because you want the whole world to join you in what you're doing. And he found so much freedom uh, in gently and repeatedly going back to scripture to let it direct his life. Mm -hmm. And really him, you know, in in Hebrews, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses. Mm -hmm. I, I think about cousin George, even though he's, praise God, he's still alive being in my cloud of witnesses and I, I look to him to say if Cousin George can get through that then yeah then I can get through this
1: yeah absolutely man I think that's helpful because it's heavy times and this is heavy stuff but especially as Christians like we go through heavy stuff with hope you know um and uh so that's good all right here's the final question this show is called that sounds fun so uh you got to tell us what do you do for fun like what are you doing now for fun uh Lauren what do you do for fun
3: well, I really love to travel, but we know that's not happening right now. So, yes, down. <laughs> so even though some
1: me, of y'all in the South might be wilding out a little bit, y'all acting like it's just well, not a pandemic out here. But that's yeah, a whole That's, that's also, yeah, we got like four podcasts <laughs> on this one podcast. But anyway, <laughs> what do you true. do for fun, Lauren?
3: But since I can't travel, uh, I love to just sit around a dinner table with great food and great wine and just great friends and mm. just have great conversation. So we've created a Monday night dinner club that's kind of been mm-hmm. a, a breath of fresh air uh during mm. the quarantine and that's been fun. I what would really sound fun is if I could do it with Ashley Kelsey. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. I know. She she wants that, but she can't leave me with these kids though. She can't <laughs> she can. <laughs> Yeah. Uh Jordan, what you do for fun, man?
2: Well, I have two things. One of them I'm sure will has never been said on this show before and will never <laughs> and will never be repeated again. I love I've gotten super into these virology lectures and podcasts. So ever never since has passed, that been I've, mentioned in the context
1: of fun. It has not.
2: <laughs> and my wife was clowning me, and she was like, "Why is like Why do you listen to these three hour long virology podcasts?" And I realized that in all of my life, people ask me for questions. They ask me questions, and I'm a quasi expert in a lot of spaces. But this is the one space that I'm allowed to be a complete. Beginner and not know anything, mm. and it's just fascinating. So that's boring, but also fun. <laughs> the second thing I like to do for fun, which is what a lot of people do, I love to grill. So my parents mm. have my parents have a grill in their backyard. My mother-in-law has a grill in her backyard, and I love to just go sit out and grill. That joint is it's just the best.
1: Well, I got two dinner invitations right now. You know, what I'm saying I'm go. coming to yes. New York. Here I'm here coming up. to Atlanta. You know, what I'm saying once up. the you know what I'm saying? Come Decides on. to pack it up and, and, and go home. Uh, man, I, I you know, I love both of y'all, man. Y'all are two of my my, my best friends in the world. And uh, I just so appreciate y'all being willing to come on and be so honest and vulnerable uh, and courageous and also just wise uh, in, in some of the advice and counsel that you've given me and everybody who's listening. So appreciate y'all. Thank you for coming on.
2: Thanks for having us.
3: Thanks,
0: Mike. Oh, friends, another amazing episode by Mike Kelsey. Y'all, can you believe he's just been the best? host this week. Mike, I cannot thank you enough. I'm so, so grateful for the time and energy and effort you put in to these three shows. I'm honored that you're the first co-host we've ever hired to be on the show. So thank you so much, Mike, for all the work you've done this week. And thanks to Lauren and Jordan for joining him on this episode as well. Hey, just remember all the links that we share this week to Amazon. will use an affiliate link where the proceeds will go directly to Mike. So if you want to buy any of the books they've mentioned today or earlier this week, you can can do that through the links we provided and that will benefit directly to Mike. Make sure you give Mike a follow. Tell him thanks so much for all he has done this week. Again, it's just Mike Kelsey on Instagram and Twitter. But thank him so much for being on the show and uh, let him know how much you appreciate all the work he put in this week as our official first ever co-host of the week. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That is how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Next week starts what you've been waiting for. Any summer 2020 kicks off Monday. So if you want to learn more about the Enneagram, if you're interested in the Enneagram, Monday will be the first show of a couple of shows in a row where we will talk about the Enneagram. So you guys go out or stay home and do something fun and I'll do the same and we'll see you back here on Monday for the kickoff of Ennea Summer 2020. Y'all have a great weekend.